developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Billions of people have vision problems, and vision is more than 2020. Vision Beyond Sight will help you see with clarity and gain courage and confidence. Your vision does not define you. You define your vision. With Dr. Lin's new way to look at your life through a new lens, you will be ready to meet yourself and receive visualizations for miracles to come. Welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Hi everyone, this is Dr. Lynn and welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Today visiting with us is my colleague, Dr. Noah Tannen. Dr. Noah is truly an amazing person as you'll quickly see his power, passion, success, creativity and influencing abilities. Today we're going to talk about something that's really unique and, and really is taking vision beyond sight. We're going to talk about mental health and vision. But before we start, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Noah, as he's led a very impressive and adventurous life in his uh, uh, young years here. Dr. Noah, early in his life, saw the transformative power that vision therapy had on his patients. As he worked uh, with his dad, Dr. Barry Tannen, as a vision therapist, even when he was in high school. Dr. Noah, as his office staff calls him, and patients call him, received his doctor optometry degree from State University of New York College of Optometry, and he completed his residency in pediatrics, vision therapy, and neuro-optometric rehabilitation at the Pennsylvania College of Optometry at Salish University. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Optometry, as well as the College of Optometrists in Vision Development. He also received a very high honor, the uh, Optilec Low Vision Award for Excellence in Low Vision. Dr. Noah specializes in uh, vision therapy, neuro-optometric rehab, and myopia control, which is all about controlling nearsightedness. His mission is to maximize the visual potential of his patients and enrich their lives by helping them to achieve their full potential. In his full... In his free time, he tells me that he's a guitarist, which is really great, being a fellow musician. And he has a big change in his life coming up in July as he's getting married to his lovely fiance Emily. He's a regular guest on Vision-Oriented Podcasts, hosts many continuing education lectures around the country, and has accomplished several publications. He's also a co-author of a book, A Parent's Guide, to Raising Children with Healthy Vision. So, Dr. Noah, welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor for me to be here. And I appreciate everything that that you and and all the pioneers have done before to, to allow me to practice the way I do and for being mentors throughout my development. So thank you. Well, I thank you for that pioneer uh, acknowledgement. Uh, those of you who d- don't know us, Dr. Um, Noah is actually 
the next generation of optometrists. Uh, he's the age of my own kids as well. So uh, it's really an honor to see what's happening, the, the excitement and, and taking what we've done. You know, I've been in practice over 45 years and what he's now doing and moving further. So it's great to have you here. So let's get started and, you know, talk about mental health that affects vision. How does that happen? Most people think of vision, you know, the best glasses, contacts. If you've listened to the podcast, you know it goes beyond that. But we really haven't addressed the mental health aspect. So uh, give us a little information how you got involved in that and uh, what that really means for your patients and what you do. Well, absolutely. I think it's a really important topic that people should be discussing now. And the reason I wanted to discuss it on your podcast is that I, I don't think a lot of people are discussing it at length, and it's still a little bit taboo, but it is important. And unfortunately, I've been seeing an uptick in visual manifestations of mental health disorders throughout the pandemic and, and with all the things that are going on in the world. And it's just something that is only uh, briefly touched upon in optometry school, where they talk about how mental health might affect functional vision or how you're using your visual system, but they don't really go beyond that. And I was this was first brought to my awareness after I saw a lecture by a, a colleague of ours, Dr. Bryce Applebaum, and he spoke about this topic and he called this phenomenon the visual breakdown which is essentially a mental breakdown that's manifesting through the visual system in kind of his description. And once he raised my awareness and I started looking out for it, I started seeing it routinely in my patients. And I saw that people were manifesting visual impairment in the absence of an identifiable cause other than, you know, a traumatic or a stressful event. And that's what initially made me do a deeper dive into the research behind all this. And it's enabled me, I think, to better understand and empathize with what my patients are going through and also to treat them more successfully as well. So if I could ask you, you mentioned the visual manifestations of mental health issues. What kinds of symptoms and what would that look like? Well, it's a great question. And I think it's important to. Um, to realize that this goes both ways. Of course, I think what people will understand from a more obvious standpoint is that visual loss or visual disease will certainly affect your mental health. And that's well-established. If, if someone has, let's say, a hereditary disease or an acquired disease that leads to progressive vision loss or blindness, certainly that's going to be a source of anxiety and it's going to disrupt the quality of your life. But what researchers have found is that the mental state and the uh, effect that the mental health exerts on the physical body and on the brain can actually further exacerbate vision loss. And you, you can look at it from a very real physical measurable standpoint in that it's been linked to exacerbating diseases that these individuals already have, like glaucoma, which is a, a optic neuropathy where the optic nerve becomes damaged over time. People that have severe anxiety, you're able to show that they have altered blood perfusion to the optic nerve, for instance, or to other structures like the macula, and that can lead to even further damage and further vision loss, so it can accelerate the disease. 
And that's been well implicated in that condition and also in, in another condition that's called central serous chorioretinopathy, which is a macular disease. But essentially, the trigger for some of these is just physical stress and, and mental stress. And it's a vicious cycle. And in um, a less measurable way, which is what I've been seeing, what I'd like to talk about, I've seen this affect visual function, how individuals use their eyes to acquire visual information about the world and how their brain processes that information, enabling, enabling them to do the daily activities that are required from them. So and, you're talking about patients that don't necessarily have a diagnosis of a visual disease like glaucoma or macular degeneration. You're talking about young, theoretically healthy patients that are beginning to show signs of visual dysfunction from anxiety and stress. Is that correct? That's exactly what I'm talking about. But in a similar fashion, once it starts, that will be a source of anxiety in and of itself, and it will exacerbate the visual function issues. And when I was in school, they, they briefly touch on this topic. It's something they kind of mention in passing so that you're aware of it, but they don't really go into the implications that this has. And so uh, an, a young optometry student might learn about something called stress syndrome. Sounds similar to stress, but it's named after the man who discovered it. S-T-R-E-F-F. And that's typically thought of as adolescents or young children who are under a lot of visual stress or near point stress or even academic stress. And they start to develop functional vision issues in the sense that they have reduced visual acuity or constricted visual field or reduced depth perception or color perception but it leads to an inability to perform their academic demands. And a lot of these children will fall behind in school or will, will struggle significantly to get their work done on time. And they teach you about this and they say it's due to the stress on the visual system. And generally the way you fix this is with plus lenses for reading or magnification to reduce the amount that their eyes have to work and to alleviate the source of the stress. And in a lot of cases, it actually works. And I think a lot of pediatric ophthalmologists or developmental optometrists see this, and they do prescribe these necessary reading glasses, and gradually they see the visual performance issues improve. But that's about the extent of what they teach you in school. And throughout the pandemic, and even just throughout my career, I've been seeing it on a much greater scale uh, in adults in a way that is significantly impairing their ability to function day to day. So let me stop you for just a second and clarify a few things um, for our listeners. Um, they may have, and this can happen especially with young kids, 7, 9, 11, 15 year old, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And I'm seeing it in older and older patients, so pretty much any age group, any demographic. Right. And they'll come to us with the sometimes they have complaints, sometimes they don't, but often they have failed, like the school vision screening of reading the 2020, the chart at 20 feet, and they'll see 2040, 2060, that's the reduced visual acuity. Yet, when we check them, the eye health often looks good, and they're not usually extremely near or far sighted, 
And have you also noticed many of them have been to a number of eye doctors already that have told them they're either, quote, faking or not trying or maybe stressed. But you mentioned, you know, doctors recognize it. Not all doctors even recognize it. They write it off because the health checks look okay. Has that been your experience? Yeah, unfortunately, I see that very often where they have been shuffled between doctors. And a lot of times, stress isn't even brought up in the conversation. And unfortunately, a lot of of doctors and parents and teachers incorrectly tell the children or feel that the children are lying about their symptoms to get out of doing the work. And they call it malingering. But in my opinion, it's certainly not malingering. And even though the eye is healthy, these are real manifestations of psychosomatic disorders. And just because something is quote-unquote psychosomatic, meaning it's arising in the brain or due to the mental state, it doesn't mean that it's not real and that the symptoms are not real. So unfortunately, I see a lot of these children written off. And a lot of these adults, now that I'm, I'm seeing it in adults, are written off by other doctors. But um, it gets to a point where I see, you know, neurologists, for instance, either telling people that they're making it up or they just want to get onto disability because they're lazy and they don't want to work. And I'm also seeing a lot of testing that yields negative results. So a neurologist, and this happens all the time with my patients, they order MRIs and they order all these imaging studies and then it all comes back unremarkable. And so the neurologist tells them, well, there's nothing wrong with you. So it's time to move on and feel better. And then finally, a lot of them end up in my chair. And luckily, there are ways that you can help these patients, I feel. You know, if I could just mention a story, this brings back a story. This was a long time ago in practice where I had a a 16-year-old female referred to me. She had just seen the ophthalmologist. And the ophthalmologist told the parents and the 16-year-old that she saw 2020. They didn't know the source of the problem. They did all the health checks and couldn't find neurology or, or pathology, but that this kiddo would never drive. And so you can imagine the emotional impact this had on this 16-year-old ready to try to get her driver's license and was told that she would never drive. And uh, she was referred to our office, and I had diagnosed a stress syndrome and started with lenses, and you'll get in some of the treatment. But in the exam chair, we actually could improve the visual acuity enough that uh, she was going to be legal to drive. So, so those of you who have teenagers, imagine your child being told that they had a vision condition they could never try a drive, and then find out it was an emotional stressor condition that actually can be helped. And so the impact is tremendous. Uh, and it, as you said, it's like a, a circle. It goes round and round. The, the stress causes the vision problems. The vision problems creates more stress. And somewhere you have to break into that cycle. Yeah. And it's, it's stories like that, which I've seen as well, which were the impetus for me to bring this topic up on a forum like this. Because I think it's, I think a lot of eye doctors, at least developmental eye doctors, probably understand it. But there's a lot of people out there who don't, and even patients going through it, they don't understand what's happening to them, and that scares them as well. And so you can imagine a 16-year-old being told that she can't drive, and the amount of anxiety that would induce. 
which is going to further exacerbate the issue. Have you in your observations noticed there's a certain type of personality that seems to be more vulnerable to um, this condition? That's a really interesting question. And I I have, just anecdotally, I've seen this. And there's, there's certain demographic groups where I see it arise more commonly and certain people that have pre-existing history of certain issues where I see it more commonly. So one of the most common things I see is if they already have a pre-existing history of anxiety. And they might even have an event that would cause visual dysfunction, like let's say a concussion or a traumatic brain injury. And the research on this is also pretty clear cut that one of the biggest indicators of a prolonged recovery from a concussion is if there already is a pre-existing history of anxiety. And I don't think it's just because they're anxious about the recovery and so they don't think they're getting better. I think there's physical changes in their body or their mental, their, their brain chemistry is different in a way that is prolonging their recovery. So for instance, if someone is under a lot of stress and anxiety, their body goes into the fight or flight response, which is when the sympathetic nervous system becomes activated in response to typically danger, and you have to either fight your way out of the danger or you have to run away from the danger. But our daily stressors now in modern life trigger this response. And sometimes people have a chronic response where they're almost always in this sympathetically activated tone, and that has changes in the body. Like, it it will uh, elevate cortisol levels in the blood and adrenaline. And these hormones, they lead to widespread inflammation throughout the body. And believe it or not, they even have been shown to produce neuroinflammation. So a lot of these, what we call glucocorticoids, can travel into the brain and they can cause a release of these pro-inflammatory cytokines, which are neurotoxic to the visual pathways and the neurons and the blood flow. And it can actually cause physical changes in the, the visual pathways that will lead to certain symptoms like dizziness or headaches or light sensitivity or uh, tunnel vision. And it's, it's kind of similar to people that have had a concussion. And anyone that treats concussion can tell you a lot of people will have a concussion and may not feel particularly symptomatic at the time of the injury. But then days or weeks later, their symptoms worsen. And that's because of the, the, the almost like uh, bruising what happened is happening in the brain where it's the after effects that cause a lot of disruption to the, the visual pathways in the brain. So just someone who is prone to anxiety, I do see this more commonly, but also I see it in a lot of students that are under a lot of academic pressure. I see it in a lot of young people who are finishing college or, or have just graduated, and they realize that it's a tough job market out there and they might not know what to do for the rest of their lives and that's a source of anxiety. I see it in a lot of new parents, a lot of people that have young children and they're trying to work in life and and they want to spend more time with their kids but they have, you know, they have to provide for their family as well. I see it in a lot of older adults, 
middle-aged adults who maybe have gone through family illness or they've gone through marital issues like divorce. And then I see it in the elderly. Uh, and that, so you see it in every age group, but typically there are patterns that these patients will follow. Yes, that's been my experience too. And uh, probably the majority that I saw that I see is um, your straight A perfectionists, often really bright kids that the pressure comes from within, not always a parent or a teacher, but trying to get all A's or, or fear of the test or, um, you know, just a number of things. But I agree with you that uh, you can see it at all ages. Um, and and that's, of course, concerning. And one of the things I make sure as I'm working with, with these patients, we can often solve the visual problems, but then... You know, I'm going to want to hear from you after the break about how to talk to parents, how to help the the patient or the parent understand psychosomatic kinds of uh, reactions. Because often I've seen after we've improved their vision, uh, sometimes the kiddo then starts, you know, having stomach aches or headaches or Mm -hmm. makes funny noise, you know, like clearing their throat. So we're going to take a break in in just a few seconds here with Dr. Noah. And after the break, Dr. Noah, we're going to really uh, want to know what do you do with these patients? How do you treat them from a visual perspective? How do you treat them uh, or deal with them with the anxiety as well? So um, please stay with us and we'll take a break and come back with Dr. Noah Tannen. Dr. Lin will be right back after this. Can your child see, really see, more than 2020? Does your child struggle in school, have trouble with tracking when reading, or resist writing? Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's award-winning book, See It, Say It, Do It, provides parents and teachers with specific tools and strategies in visualization and processing. Improve and empower your child's learning and performance in school, sports, and play. Get See It, Say It, Do It on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Vision Beyond Sight will help you find clarity in your functional vision and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Join Dr. Lynn each week for a new exciting episode, Vision Beyond Sight.
Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's book, 50 Tips to Improve Your Sports Performance, has identified the top 50 ways for you to achieve excellent results in any sport activity, enhance eye-mind-body coordination skills, achieve the mental edge, prevent injuries. This book belongs in every athlete's or coach's sports bag. Get 50 tips to improve your sports performance on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Welcome back to Vision Beyond Sight. Here's Dr. Lynn. Hi, we're here with Dr. Noah Tannen, who's a great um, developmental optometrist from New Jersey, who's been talking with us about the mental health aspects of vision. And um, our first part of our podcast, he went into a lot of the symptoms and, and issues that, you know, people think of the eyes as these independent entities, and they are just actually an extension of the brain, and they're so interconnected with our body. In fact, much of the research now, you know, when you do research on general inflammation and and health and body, so often the research is done through the visual system. And um, there's over 300 diseases that you that eye doctors might detect by just doing a thorough vision evaluation. And so today we're really talking about the mental aspect of how vision impacts uh, mental health and mental health issues can impact your visual function as well. So Dr. Noah, if you can now start talking about when you have patients that you believe have stress syndrome or some stress-related visual issue, walk us through how you... uh, present the case and and take care of these patients? Well, first and foremost, I think you need to sympathize with them and tell them, I believe you. I I believe that you're struggling. And I I know that what you're telling me is real. Because up until that point, usually by the time they get to us, they've been through many, many doctors and have even in a lot of cases suffered for years with these visual issues. And people, you know, the other professionals just shrug or they tell them they're making it up. They're just telling them that this is real. And I am seeing in my clinical findings what you're telling me. Even though we might not always know what the triggering event is, if they tell me that they have severe headaches or light sensitivity when looking on screen or they get really dizzy and lightheaded when driving, then I can look at the clinical findings and usually find a reason for that in how they're using their eyes. So in terms of the eye alignment or the eye teaming skills, usually there's a disruption or, or an instability in the ability to fuse the eyes together and keep them in alignment. And there's poor flexibility in the system for changing that alignment. Usually there's poor tracking skills. Usually there's blurry vision and reduced focusing skills. Sometimes there's reduced peripheral awareness and or they might be have peripheral overwhelm in which um, visually busy environments or motion in their environments can trigger their symptoms. And usually you can see that in the findings. And so you can say, well, I can see why you're struggling so much. Your ability to converge your eyes is severely reduced 
or your ability to keep your eyes in alignment while driving is severely reduced. So that's number one, is telling them it's real and that you understand what they're going through and that it's treatable. Because a lot of them, they, they don't know why it's happening and they're afraid they're going to be like that forever. And just knowing that you have experience with this and you've seen patients improve will certainly help them and reduce some of their stress right off the bat. That's a really that's important that. point. Yeah. And um, so often people go to the doctor and they've been, even other conditions told, either nothing's wrong or nothing can be done. And empowering patients, that's part of the treatment I know, is letting them Absolutely. know that you believe them and that you found some information that documents you know, the results. That's huge. I've had patients cry in the exam room when it's like, well, somebody at least listened to me. Whether or not they can even treat yeah. it, somebody listened. So thanks. That's really I, important. I see that a lot. And I, I work with my father. and We have a little joke. If the patient didn't cry during the Zen, you didn't do a good enough job. <laughs> we see <laughs> it so commonly. That's great. That's great. So continue on. So that is a very big aspect, in my opinion. Uh, the next thing is to obviously address the visual problem and the visual dysfunction. Because just by treating the vision problem, you're reducing one of the big sources of anxiety in their life. And we do that typically with uh, the application of lenses or prism, which are just different ways to prescribe glasses to enhance visual function. And we do vision therapy or neurooptometric rehabilitation, where we train them to improve these visual skills and their visual perception. And we increase the the neural pathways in the brain, we improve their function and we kind of rehabilitate them back to a level where they used to be in order to handle the visual demands on their visual system. And that can take a, a few weeks or a few months. And we work with our patients on a weekly basis with that. And a lot of times when I have these patients, I'll also incorporate um, what people refer to as syntonics or optometric phototherapy in which you'll use different wavelengths of light to either inhibit or excite the, the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. And the goal is to re-regulate the autonomics to have better balance. So they're not constantly in a fight or flight response. And I'll even do that in the form of tinted lenses as well. If, if you give them a pair of glasses that have a certain wavelength and everybody responds to slightly different wavelengths, I found that alone can help reduce their stress response just by changing the colored overlay that they're seeing the world through. So they'll usually wear that in the acute stages of their recovery, and I'll even give them their own light therapy box to take home with them, and they can do that on a daily basis for a few minutes. But the vision therapy is really important at, at fixing the vision problems, but also having someone on your team that is rooting for your success, that's giving you continuous encouragement, and that you're establishing a relationship with because you're seeing them regularly. And you you do the therapy with them, but you, a lot of times there's conversation. And in a way, it's almost like a little bit of psychotherapy because you tell, you know, the patient tells the therapist about some of the struggles they're going through. And again, the therapist sympathizes with them and has is working towards a common goal to improve them. So I found that's been really helpful is actually addressing the visual problems directly, of course. 
Sure. And, and I think uh, what's important for the listeners to know when you're prescribing glasses and prism and tints, it is often not the routine prescription. Let's say you're nearsighted and you have a certain prescription. These are other kinds of lenses um, to really uh, help you see differently. It's not just correcting what we call the refractive error, the near farsightedness. And that's uh, absolutely really important. Now, you mentioned a little bit like it's like psychotherapy. Are you actually providing psychotherapy to the patient or do you end up referring them or how do you deal with that aspect? We, we often feel like we're providing psychotherapy to the patient, but uh, we're not licensed or officially trained for that, where I just address the visual issues. And I like to think it has a bit of a psychotherapeutic effect on the patient, but I certainly refer to actual professionals for that side of it. And I think that is the next step, is you can fix all the vision problems, but you absolutely have to talk with them about anxiety and stress, and you have to address that independently, and they work together. And medication is one way to do it. I'm not the biggest fan of medication, but sometimes people will get started by using medication, and that will help them to improve faster in these other methods. But I'm more in favor of things like psychotherapy, and I will refer to professionals that can do talk therapy. And also, I'll speak with my patients about just general methods to improve the mental health. And sometimes the first step is just having that conversation and just telling them this could potentially be a trigger for why you're feeling this way. Because a lot of people, they come in and they say, I don't know why this is happening to me. And when you probe a little further and you ask them, usually there is a very identifiable identifiable traumatic event that has occurred around the time that the visual issue started. And just raising their awareness will help them understand why it's happening to them. And then I speak with them about things like meditation and breath work, yoga, um, exercise rehabilitation, music therapy, things that I use personally that I know have helped me and that I, I've read a lot of books on. I have a pretty good understanding. So even though I'm not a professional in those topics, I have a pretty good understanding and ability to at least give people tips to get them started on how to reduce their anxiety on their own and how to enlist the help of other professionals to reduce their anxiety. Yeah, that's that's really all great. And, um, and I agree with you and do many of the same recommendations for alternative uh, treatments as well. One of the things, and you mentioned it was breath work, we actually will, the one thing that I'll tell a patient with anxiety is um, the importance of breathing. Mm -hmm. And and they'll look at me, I've had patients say, well, I don't have time to practice breathing. <laughs> it's like, well, Except that you does. do it all the time. <laughs> well, but often you're holding your breath or you're right. hyperventilating. And so, you know, I feel it's so important in my first book that I wrote, See It, Say It, Do It. There's actually little breathing activities. And I have found that by just focusing whether it's where you're stressed like on your stomach or put your hand where your your throat feels tight that if you'll just put your hands where you're feeling it in the body and just breathe in and out and there's lots of different patterns and you can count to four or six there's lots of different ways to breathe 
But even with little kids, if you can just get them stop, to stop and take a breath and break the cycle, because the way I see these patients in anxiety, they're like, you know, a hamster in a wheel going round and round and round and round. And there's no way in the world you can talk to them consciously to make choices and decisions and until the system calms down and the power of the breath is truly amazing and you know that's where we will start and then um you know my my personal passion is visualization and that's you know mm-hmm. so important in the treatment because i find this is my own finding many of these patients with anxiety have great visualization skills they see themselves with everything that could go wrong <laughs> in their head, all the details and all the breakdowns and all that, you know. And so working on visualization, we find very, very helpful to teach people that they're in charge of their pictures. And what if they could empower their own pictures and movies in their, their head? Um, yeah. And so so um, everything you've mentioned is great. Yeah, and that's so true. Everything you just said there. And I'm a big supporter of breath work. It's something I practice on a daily basis. And when when you are anxious, one of those physical changes in the body is to increase the breath rate. Um, it changes pulmonary function, almost like you would have to run away from danger. And one of the techniques in addition to breath work, which I'm sure that you utilize all the time, is something called autogenic training but it's a form of visualization where you're trying to manifest a certain um, emotional state through focusing on your breath and repeating a mantra to yourself. Like I am completely calm right now. I can handle what's going to happen to me today. And, and by repeating those, those affirmating statements to yourself, you can manifest it and slow down the heart rate and slow down the breathing. And it, it's a form of visualization. Well, it's certainly a piece piece of that. And just the awareness that you're in an anxious state, if you can be aware, because I know, you know, with certain medical things I've been through and I start getting really anxious, just being aware of, whoa, I am really anxious about this. Mm-hmm. That starts breaking the cycle that then can get you into doing affirmations like you mentioned and, and things like that. So the awareness is huge. Uh, when yeah. you're caught up in the anxiety, you're caught up. And, you know, a lot of people go to the ER, the emergency room, because of their mm-hmm. breathing or they feel like they're having a heart attack. And, and just being aware. And, and again, if you have those symptoms, you need to do that by all means. But but the more you can become aware of your own state, then the more that you can start finding some tools to help alter your state. Um, yeah, and, and I think a lot of people can probably identify that because I know this sometimes happens to myself. I'm having a really stressful day. All of a sudden, it might occur to me that I'm clenching my jaw. Right. And then I realized, why well, I must have been clenching my jaw for the past hour or all day. And you don't even know you're doing it until you bring your awareness to it and you can relax the muscles in your, in your face and your jaw and your neck and shoulders. And that's the first step in reducing the anxiety. And another right. thing that I talk to all the time, and this is, again, a little outside of my scope of practice, but people, I think, appreciate the advice 
is the importance of the basics, like good sleep, having a good diet, drinking a lot of uh, water and staying hydrated, exercise. And there's a huge impact in terms of gut health and diet that that I don't think people always recognize as well. Like that feeling, for instance, when you're very anxious that you have butterflies in your stomach. And what that really is, is reduced blood flow to the gut and the intestines to redirect blood flow to the muscles and the lungs for that fight or flight response. But it shuts down digestion. It, it can give you stomach issues. It can cause physical discomfort. And if you don't eat a healthy diet and improve the gut bacteria, then those are the nutrients that your body and your brain use. So just being as healthy as possible is a big piece of the puzzle that sometimes they overlook as well. You know, they might not be sleeping well, or they might have a very poor diet, and you kind of have to address this from a very holistic standpoint. It's not one thing in isolation. It's the whole picture. It's the whole person. That's so true. And often these patients with high anxiety, they're up in the middle of the night anxious about mm-hmm. something, thinking so sleep. And we always talk, yeah, yeah, sleep, but the importance of sleep. And, and uh, I have a real passion in functional medicine. And so gut health and all those things are are so important too. We could talk forever on this topic. I can see that, <laughs> Dr. Noah. And, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're, we're almost out of time. And I want to make sure that you could share with our listeners how they can learn more about you and your book, so if you'll uh, give your website or however you'd like them to contact you, please. Absolutely. Well, this, in addition to the increased anxiety that I've been seeing in my office, I've also been seeing an increase in myopia or nearsightedness, especially in children. And that, believe it or not, has actually been, or they've linked those together as well. But in a much more real sense, I think it's the physical demands that, children are experiencing right now in terms of excessive screen time, reduced time playing outdoors, and increased academic demand. And these, a lot of children around the world, but especially in this country, are advancing in their prescriptions. And this can have very real impact on the health of their eyes long term. So actual physical diseases can occur from higher amounts of nearsightedness. And each generation we're seeing is having higher and higher prescriptions than their parents. So I did write a book on this topic, and maybe we'll touch on this in a future podcast, but it's about what's happening in terms of the myopia epidemic worldwide, why it's happening, and how to fix it. And there are ways to actively intervene to slow the development of these prescriptions to preserve eyesight throughout a lifetime. And I wrote a book on that. Yeah, called I, I, a, sorry, go what ahead and give say? the book and please where you can get it. I want to make sure people know where they can get this book on your website. The book is called A Parent's Guide to Raising Children with Healthy Vision. And it's available on Amazon. And you can also just Google it. And there's a whole website as well that will that you can purchase the book and read more about it. And That's I, I co-authored that book with my colleague, Dr. Despotitis. And we do a lot of myopia control at our practice. 
And he actually himself, he has his own consulting side of the practice where he teaches other doctors to do this as well. And well, Dr. Noah, is, I, I hate to cut you off here. We're out of time, oh, but make sure okay. your website is icareprofessionals.com for people to contact him. We truly thank you for your expertise and time. And remember uh, to join us each week uh, for another great session. We'll have Dr. Noah back on myopia control. Thanks so very much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It meant a lot to me. Thank you for joining us today on Vision Beyond Sight. Join Dr. Lynn Hellerstein each week to help you find clarity in your functional vision and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Remember, your vision does not define you. You define your vision. For more information and find additional podcasts, visit lynnhellerstein.com. See you next time on Vision Beyond Sight.